Well, good morning, church. Nice to see you today. How are you? Nice to see you. Uh, we're in Habakkuk chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you, uh, if you didn't have a Bible with you today, you're welcome to look that up on your phone. Or uh, there, are se- there are Bibles in the seat back there in front of you as well, so you can follow along. Uh, and we'll, we'll put it on the screens. We're in an ongoing study uh, of the book of Habakkuk. We've got uh, three more weeks, so we're about halfway through. We're midway through this study. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a just a heads up if you want to do some early advanced prep. We're going to be studying 2 Thessalonians after this. So uh, in a, what's that, about four weeks from now, we'll be in 2 Thessalonians, that lets you get ahead of it. But, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Here in Habakkuk, if you were with us last week, uh, and, and just sort of to catch you up to where we are, we see that the prophet Habakkuk comes to God and says, your people in Judah are wicked, they've abandoned their promises to you, God, and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything about it. Why don't you do something about the wickedness of your people? God then comes back and says, oh no, I, I'm going to do something about the wickedness of my people. In fact, I, even now I'm raising up the Chaldeans who are going to come in and they're going to plunder all of Judah and they're going to they're destroy you, right? So, so then Habakkuk comes back and says, well, that's not exactly what I was hoping for, right? I wasn't looking for destruction at the the hands of those who are more wicked than we are, in Habakkuk's estimation. He says, this isn't who you are, God. I, I know you to be pure, and I know you to be holy, and I know you to be just, and so how can you do this thing? And God comes back then a second time after Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait, right? At the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait and hear how God responds to my reply, and I'm also going to pay attention to how I respond to God's response Now we're hearing God's response, and as we looked at it last week, God comes to Habakkuk, he says, I want you to write these things down, I want you to make them plain, I want them to be lasting so that those who read them can be on the move with them, so that what I'm saying here isn't just something they know intellectually, but it's something that catalyzes them to movement, to carry that message on. And then as we looked at in in verse 4 of Habakkuk chapter 2 last week, he summarizes, uh, there's sort of a, a juxtaposition here. In verse 4 he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. We focused on that last week. God juxtaposes two different kinds of people. He says there's the kind of person who's swollen or bloated with his own pride, swollen or bloated with his own ideas, with his own thoughts, with his own competence, and he's so puffed up and swollen, sort of overfilled with himself, that his soul is crooked, his soul is not upright, he's broken, right? We talked about being bent out of shape spiritually last week. He says, but there's another way to live. There's another way to live, which is to live by faith. He says, the righteous by his faith shall live. This whole book, if we were to give it a summary, is the ability to be confident in who God is and what he has said. That by our faith in who God is and how he has revealed himself and how he will continue to reveal himself, we can live our ongoing lives, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when there are things that we don't understand that don't fit into our little boxes of who we think God is or what we think he should do. God says there's a way to live and it's, it's the way of faith. We talked last week about the fact that that's not only the way to live our daily lives, but it is the key to eternal life, right? That apart from faith in Christ, we are spiritually dead. Now as we continue on in this study, verses five and following, we'll see God show the other side of that coin. If there's one way to live, which is by faith in God, by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the other way to live is to be that person who is swollen up, puffed up with himself. And God is not only going to give us a description of that, he's going to show us here in this section the consequences of that kind of living. Some of you probably panicked as we got into verse five, the very first thing we read here, Moreover, wine is a traitor, right? How many of you felt a little bit nervous about that, right? Yeah. If you felt nervous about that, that probably is a decent check that you should pay a little bit of attention to how important wine is to you. I'm not going to get into great detail there. Know that God is talking about this crooked-souled person. 
And he jumps here and says, wine is a traitor. By the way, in some of the ancient texts, that word wine is actually replaced with the word wealth. Theologians and commentators uh, are not sure which one of those words is the original one, whether it's wine or wealth, but I'll tell you that regardless of whether it's wine or wealth, the principle remains the same. What God says here is that when we're puffed up with ourselves, when we're swollen and bloated with our own thoughts and our own ideas, with our own selfishness, we try to take comfort in things that cannot comfort us. So if you read this as wine, which the ESV translates it, it says, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. The idea here is that we can find no rest or peace or satisfaction. That all we find when we try and satisfy ourselves with wine or wealth is an insatiable desire for more. It's not unlike what the writer to the Ecclesiastes, or writer in Ecclesiastes says, where he says, the eye never has its fill of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. We are by nature people who are never satisfied. So the, the, God says here, um, he says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. He says, when we talk about specifically the Chaldeans, we talk about the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar was known for his drunken revelry, and in fact, in the book of Daniel, we'll see that Babylon is overthrown in the midst of a drunken party, right? So you could go and look that up in Daniel. We know that for Nebuchadnezzar and for the Babylonians, wine was a crutch, but it did not bring them rest, and it did not bring them peace. Their incredible wealth did not bring them rest, and it did not bring them peace, those things were traitorous to them. And God says, when you're swollen with yourself, you're going to always be unsatisfied because you are not meant to be satisfied with yourself. That cannot satisfy you. He says, and yet this greed, this insatiable appetite, it just swallows like death, like hell. It has an open maw that just devours everything in front of it because it's never satisfied. There's a couple of overarching principles I want you to see as we look at the woes. There, there are five woes that are pronounced then after this, and we're going to look at each in turn. But a couple of overarching things I want you to see here. As we get into these woes, the first thing I want you to understand is that sin, by its very design, is self-defeating. When I say sin, I mean wickedness or evil, the failure to glorify God. You and I were built with a purpose, each and every one of us, no matter who you are, where you come from, we were all designed with a purpose, and that is that we would glorify God, that we would honor Him in our thoughts and our words and our attitudes and the things that we do. And when we fail to glorify God, the Bible calls that sin. That failure to do what our lives were built to do is called sin, and that sin leads to death and separation from God. But from the very first sin, you can look all the way back at Genesis 2, and in Genesis 2, God says, don't eat from that tree. Remember that story? Don't eat from that tree because the moment you do, what? You shall surely die. I want you to understand that death in that, in that circumstance was not an arbitrary judgment. It wasn't God going like, what should the punishment be for eating the forbidden fruit, right? What should, I'm, I gotta think of something. I could ground them right? Uh, I could put them in the corner for a little, put them in the corner of the garden for a little while. No, I'm going to kill them, right? Death is going to be the consequence. No, no, no. The consequence of sin is not arbitrary. There's not an arbitrary judgment. The consequence of sin is a natural outworking of that brokenness. So the moment that they ate that fruit, they, they then were trusting in their own designs. They were trusting in their own hunger for wisdom. They were trusting in the lies that the serpent had told them. They had disregarded God. And as a result, it wasn't that death was sort of an arbitrary judgment, but death happened because in their sin, in their failure to glorify God, they were separated from him. And in being separated from him, God, who is life itself, to be separated from life is to be rendered spiritually dead. 
It's not an arbitrary consequence. It's not that God just decided death would be the the byproduct. Death is the byproduct of separating ourselves from God who is life. What we will see in these woes and what I want you to understand about all of sin is that it has a natural consequence to it. You may be sitting here in the room this morning wrestling, suffering, grieving over the consequences of your choices and your actions. I want you to see that's not just sort of arbitrarily thrown out there. The consequences of our wicked choices turn around on us. And we'll see that in great detail here in these five woes. There is a sort of a natural consequence to sin. That is by God's design. It's a result of God's wisdom that that what we do then sort of comes back to us. As such, while these specific woes are about Nebuchadnezzar and they are about the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, we want to be really careful that we don't read these woes and go, weren't they terrible, right? There is a danger for us to look at this and go, man, I'm so glad I'm not a Chaldean. So happy that I'm not a Babylonian because it sounds like they were jerks, right? Another thing, sort of an overarching principle I want you to understand, and it's true of Habakkuk here and these woes specifically, but it's true of all of Scripture. There are moments in Scripture where there are punishments or judgments that are rendered upon a specific people group, and those can't necessarily be universally applied. Does that make sense? But what they, dis- what, what they declare to us or what they reveal to us about the character of God is universally true. What they reveal to us about God's expectation and about his justice is universally true. So if that feels a little confusing, what I'm saying here is that you can't look at this and say, well, it was the Chaldeans who did all these things, and so this has no application for me. No, what we have to do is look at it and say, okay, while this is a specific judgment upon the Chaldeans, it tells me something about who God is. It tells me something about how he feels about oppression and robbery and violence and bloodshed and greed and segregation. It tells me something about how God feels about these things, and I can take what I understand about the character of God here and apply that to my own situation, even though these judgments are not pronounced upon me specifically. Does that make sense? It reveals something about the character of God, and it is helpful in the process of studying Scripture to think about how what is revealed about God then relates to my own life and my own sin. Every one of us in the room are sinners. I don't know if that that might be like a shock to you. Sorry to uh, catch you off guard, but all of us are broken. There isn't a single solitary person in the room who hasn't failed to glorify God. We are all sinful. We all have moments of weakness and brokenness. And so what we want to do is we want to look at our own brokenness. We want to look at our own weakness. We want to look at our own sin and find ourselves in this story as we understand that God holds a very high standard and that he is just and holy. And as the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy, he will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. We should take that very seriously. The next thing I want you to see, though, as a big overarching principle is that these are woes. They're woes. And you go, well, yeah, so what does that mean? Well, I want you to see that when God pronounces these woes, that in the voice of God, the, these aren't about doom and denunciation, right? It's not about, it's, it's not about this sort of uh, lightning bolt hurling God that just wants to obliterate people off the, off the face of the map. When God articulates this judgment, right, when he articulates what's going to come around for the Chaldeans, and declare something about his character, I want you to see that he does it in the context of a woe, which expresses grief and sorrow. It's a lament. There's a sadness in it. I, uh, some of you know I'm a big video game guy, and, uh, and I've, I've always kind of been not only a video game guy, but I've been kind of an early adopter with video games. So I'm the kind of, I'm the kind of nerdy guy who finds out a new PlayStation's going to come out, and then I'll like park outside the Best Buy for 24 hours, you know what I'm talking, like I'm that guy, right, so you've driven by and been like, look at those idiots, I was in that line, right, so I'm a, 
I'm a guy who likes to play video games, and I sometimes will uh, save up the money to be able to buy a video game system on the day it comes out. There's all new video game systems coming out in 2020. My wife is already feeling panicked about that. But uh, I remember, you'll remember in the ancient times when the very first Wii came out. You remember the very first Wii? Back, back way in the days of our forefathers when the very first Wii came out. Uh, I was a guy who bought the very first Wii on, like, launch day. I, I reserved it. I saved up my money. I bought the Wii. And I'll tell you, it was like this brand new technology, right? This, I pulled this out of the archives. <laughs> oh, right? This little thing was so fun. In our living, we could play tennis. We could box, you know. We could jog. I don't know why we were jogging with it, but whatever. We hand off the baton. You could do all kinds of things with this. And I just remember when we first bought it, how much I, how much I loved it. I loved sort of coming home from work and being able to play games with my family and whatever. And, uh, and one day I came home from work and I was really excited to get the Wii going and whatever. And I come home and, uh, and I can't find the controller. It might be this very controller. I couldn't find it. And I want, and I want to know where it was. So I wanted to play. And uh, so I'm looking around. I'm the couch cushions, all the normal places you look for Wii controllers. Uh, I look under the couch, I look at wherever, can't find it. I finally call out and I say, hey, does anybody know uh, where the Wii controller is? And my son Hank, who was about uh, two or three at the time, he goes, uh, yeah, I've got it. And I was like, oh, well, he was over sitting at the kitchen counter, and I, so I hadn't really been paying attention to him, but I walk over, I'm like, what are you doing with it? And he goes, eating yogurt. And I come around the corner, and he had the Wii controller and an open thing of yogurt, and he was dipping it into the... <laughs> And then eating it off. <laughs> Yogurt. And you guys, I'll t- I mean, at the time, I f- we'd spent a lot of money on this, right? So I did that, like, silent scream. <laughs> oh, it just makes, like, a little squeak. <laughs> you know, and I took it away from him, and I washed it off. And I, I remember feeling just this, like, panic, right, for a couple of reasons. A couple of things wrong with what was happening there. The first one is, this piece of technology is capable of so much more than consuming yogurt, right? (laughs) Like the amount of time and effort that scientists put into developing something beautiful here, like just use a spoon, right? It does that. So there was a part of me that felt outraged by the way in which this beautiful tool was being used for less than it was designed. There was another part of me that immediately recognized that in the using it for something less than it was purposed, it would be destroyed. That if over time you continue to use a Wii controller as a way to serve yourself food, it's only a matter of time before this will not work anymore. When you use it for something other than its intended purpose, it is destroyed over time. And so there was grief in my heart. There was sorrow that my son had done this thing because it could do so much more than what he was doing with it. And also I saw that in his failure to use it correctly, it was being wrecked. Can I tell you, that's the very same thing that God feels when he looks at our lives embroiled in sin. Sin is not what we're built for. Separation from God is not what we're built for. Rejection from God being swollen and saturated with our own self and our own thoughts and our own pride is not what we're built for. And when we stuff ourselves to bloated with ourselves so that our soul is crooked, it not only grieves the heart of God because that's not what we were made for, but it grieves the heart of God because in time we will be destroyed by that misuse. So these are woes. These aren't lightning bolts. This isn't God's, you know, like anger. It's not hatred. It is judgment, but it's judgment that comes in the form of sorrow and grief and lament at lives that have been wrongly used. Does that make sense? I wonder this morning if you've been using your life for less than it was intended and if you're starting to feel the wear and tear of the yogurt on the Wii controller. If you're starting to feel like, man, this, 
My life is meant to be more than this, isn't it? Why is this all breaking down? It's because you weren't built to serve yourself. He says, moreover, wine or wealth is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects his own all peoples. Verse six, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and here we will see the sort of taunting song of those who have been oppressed those who have been oppressed by the Chaldeans. There are five woes here. We're not going to spend a ton of time in them, but remember, we're looking not only at the specific pronouncement on the the Chaldeans, but the way in which that reveals something to us about God and his expectation for us. The first woe we see here in uh, verses uh, six through eight. The people will rise up and in a mocking song, firstly, they'll say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. In each of these woes, there's a little bit of a pattern. There is a pronouncement of what has been done and then what the consequence of that is and then the why. So you'll see that pattern. I don't want to necessarily get lost in that. But this first woe has to do with theft and robbery. He says, woe to them who heap up what is not their own. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. It's taking things that do not belong to them. How long? And loads himself with pledges. What's that mean? Well, the the idea there is is of increasing your debt. Increasing your debt to other people saying, hey, I'm going to pay this back. I'm going to take these things for myself. They don't belong to me, but I'm going to have them. And sooner or later, you'll, you'll get it coming back. God says here, if that's the kind of person you are, if that's the kind of king that Nebuchadnezzar have been, if that's the kind of people that Babylon has been, there is a day coming when all of that violence done and all of that theft and all of that robbery and all of that heaping up of more and more and more, there are all these people out there who would look at you and say, you know what, you've taken and taken and taken and taken and we're not going to give anymore. In fact, we're going to rise up and we're going to take it back from you. He says, if you're a thief and if you're a plunderer, if you're someone who takes what doesn't belong to you and heaps up pledges, unsatisfied debt, then there is a moment in which that's going to turn around. It's going to come back at you. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. We'll hear about that again, the the blood of man. It's not just taking things that don't belong to you, but in a destructive and violent way. Taking things that are not your own. I wonder as we understand sort of overarchingly that God does not tolerate theft, that he does not tolerate taking what doesn't belong to us, that he doesn't tolerate just taking and taking and taking with no intention of ever giving back, that that grieves the heart of God and that there is a consequence for it. I would want us to plug that into our own lives. I'd want us to plug that principle about God into our own families. I'd want us to plug that principle about God into our community and into our country and into our world and look for the places where taking has become the main thing. Just get whatever you can. That's the first of the woes here. The second woe we see as we start in verse nine, it runs nine through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall 
and the beam from the woodwork respond. He's talking here about the fact that, that there is, uh, over time, the desire to take and take and take to do what? To, to build a sense of sort of false security for yourself. Specifically in this woe, he's talking about building yourself a nest or a castle that's removed from everybody else. You notice here that he's not just talking about building yourself a sense of false security, but he's talking about building yourself a, fall, a sense of false security on the backs of other people. He says in verse 10, you've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. What's that mean? It means that what I start to be preoccupied with is my own safety, my own preservation, that I take and take and take to build myself a haven or a habitat or a castle or a safe spot where nobody can get in, but the way I do that is by separating myself from others. He says, listen, the, the beams, the timbers of your nest the very woodwork and the brickwork of the safe spot you have built for yourself speaks out against you. The Bible has several places that talk about our sin testifying against us. In Isaiah chapter 59, not, not dissimilar from this, Isaiah 59, 12, it says, the people say to God, our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against you. Our, excuse me, our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. God says all of this stuff you've built, all of this false security that you've built to preserve and protect yourself at the expense of others, all of that stuff you've built to protect yourself, it testifies against you that all you care about is yourself. The heaping up of more and more, the protecting of myself at the expense of other people, these are the things that the Chaldeans here are judged for. Woe for evil gain, false security through oppression and segregation. These things will testify against you. Thirdly, look at verses 12 through 14. It says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The third woe we see here is for a community founded in violence and sin. I want you to see too here that there's an interesting progression that when I am the kind of person who just wants to get more and more and more and I want to take what you have and I want to take what other people have and all I care about, I don't care about your suffering, I don't care about violence that's necessary to get the things I want, but as long as I'm just trying to get and get and get because I'm trying to protect myself and build a safe place for myself at the expense of other people, that pretty soon what happens is I create a culture around me where people look and go, yeah, that's the right way to live. Not only is that guy doing that thing, not only is Nebuchadnezzar doing that thing where he just heaps up for himself, but pretty soon we start to look and go, well, if that's the way we're supposed to be, then we need to start hurting other people. We need to start trampling other people. We need to start walking over the backs of other people in order to build our own safety nest, right? We need to start oppressing other people to get what we can get. He says, so look, there's a third woe here, which is about a community. It's about a city built on bloodshed and violence. Well, how does that happen? There's not a moment where everybody sort of puts a hand in and says, what kind of a community do we want to be? Should we be a community of peace? Should we be a community of grace and generosity? Should we be a community of mercy? Nah, let's be selfish and violent, right? Nobody ever sort of puts a hand in to decide to do that. What happens is that there are a few people who do it without any consequence. No one ever says, hey, this is wrong. And pretty soon we all go, yeah, that's just kind of the way life's supposed to be. And all of a sudden you have cities built on violence and bloodshed. Communities founded in sin. Jeremiah 51, 58 uh, actually articulates the very same judgment, the very same woe we see here. Jeremiah 51, 58, Jeremiah says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
The broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing, and the nations weary themselves only for fire. In Habakkuk, uh, in the section we're reading right now, it says, uh, behold, verse 13, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? He says, look, when you become a, a, a community founded on selfishness and pride, violence and selfish gain, self-protection, right? When you become a community like that, all of your labor is for nothing. All of the things that you're stockpiling, all the stuff you're building up, all the things you're trying to hold on to so tightly, you won't get to keep them because those things are transient. None of that stuff lasts. There are lasting things that you can be investing in. There are lasting things that you can put your efforts towards and those have to do what? With the glory of God. That's why when we look at this verse, he says, people are laboring in vain. Everything is just for the fire. Except, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is something that lasts into eternity, and it is our worship. It is God's glory. That is the currency of the kingdom of God. Is there things that you and I can do today in our lives to stockpile God's glory? Absolutely. We can absolutely stockpile the glory of God by turning our hearts toward him, worshiping him in every thought and word and deed and attitude and increasingly becoming refined in that process. If we put our endeavors toward that, toward doing the thing we were built to do, using the Wii controller the way it was designed to be used, then guess what? Those efforts last forever because the earth will be filled with the glory of God, but the earth will not be filled with my own self-satisfaction. The earth will not be filled with my incredible bank account. The earth will not be filled with my own self-preservation. And it certainly won't be filled with the violence that I've done to other people to just get more and more and more for myself. God says, woe to you, you've built a city rooted or founded on bloodshed and violence. All the work that you're doing inside a context like that is for nothing. It all ends up in the fire. The walls of Babylon will burn. The gates will crumble. And you will have wasted all of that time. He says, instead, remember that the thing that lasts, the thing that matters, is the glory of God. Put your efforts there. That's the third woe. Woe for the community founded in violence. The next one we see in verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. When I read this the first time in my preparation, I immediately thought about pornography, which is an exploitation a usury of other people's bodies, a usury of other people's sexuality, of their God-designed personhood in order to satisfy ourselves. We see pornography run rampant. I don't think that's specifically what he's saying, but the principle here is the same. It's about exploitation of other people for my own selfish gain. He says, woe to the Chaldeans in verse, uh, in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. 
This fourth woe is for exploitation and the selfish manipulation of the environment and others. I was also really uh, intrigued when I read this the first time because of the thing about animals, right? There's an interesting part at the end of this where it says that the, that the cup of the Lord will come around to you. There's, there's, a, there's a picture that's being painted. I've taken a cup full of wine and I forced my neighbors to drink it so I can look at their nakedness, right? So that I can shame them, so that I can expose them for my own satisfaction, so that I can expose them for my own elevation, right? I've exposed their shame to lift myself up. Now it says that cup that you gave to other people in order to suppress them, in order to objectify them, in order to oppress them, that same cup is going to come around to you, the cup of the Lord's wrath. We see the cup of the Lord's wrath talked about not only in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, we also see it talked about in the New Testament when Jesus himself took the cup for us, the cup of God's wrath. God here says that cup is going to come around and you're going to drink and you will be the one who is shamed. You will be the one who is exposed for the things that you've done. And then when he talks about the things that have been done, it says in verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. I was like, what's this thing about animals? The more I dug into it, the more I recognized that uh, Lebanon was known for its cedars. It was known for its forests, right? And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, came in and leveled those forests for what? to build his palaces, to build up his own wealth, to create for himself a safety nest, right? And in that process, he also destroyed the habitats and the lives of countless animals. You might be the kind of person who thinks God doesn't care about our environment or that God doesn't care about the plights of all living creatures upon the earth, but I will remind you that the earth and the fullness thereof belong to the Lord that we have been called to steward these things. And as we're thinking about the overarching heart of God for the earth, he cares about the plight of animals. He cares about the plight of forests. We cannot disregard this. I don't want to make too much of it, but I don't want you to miss here that he looks at them and says, there's a cup that's coming around to you because you've not only exploited the nakedness and the shame of other people, but you've exploited everything for your own gain. You've stopped at nothing to exploit whatever you can. And that shame will come around to you, he says. Woe, fourthly, for the exploitation and selfish manipulation of creation and others. And then fifthly, fifthly he talks about woe to idolatry. He says in verse 18, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breadth at all in it. You see, there's a progression here that goes, when I start taking things that don't belong to me, when I start heaping up things that belong to other people and amounting all kinds of obligation and debt to other people, heaping up these pledges, when I take on all of this false security and I start to think, you know who's going to take care of me? Me. My bank account's going to take care of it. My house is going to take care of it. My health insurance is going to take care of it. The only thing that matters is protecting Darren. There's a slippery slope here. All of a sudden, I'm living in a community of a bunch of people who all only care about themselves, a community founded on thievery and selfish gain and bloodshed and violence. We become a place where all we care about is exposing the shame of other people to make ourselves feel better, exploiting whatever we can to lift ourselves up. And the progression where that leads, if you follow it all the way to its end, is that pretty soon we don't worship God at all. We worship the things we've made. We look at our nest egg and we go, look at how hard I've worked on this, right? We look at our abilities, we look at our accomplishments, we look at these things that we have made. When it talks about idol worship, don't be confused here. 
There are people who are literally worshiping idols in, 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 in Babylon, right? Statues, images made of wood and stone, covered over with gold and silver. They're, they're sort of fancified and made to look beautiful, but there is no breath in them. God is not there. They do not speak. And therefore, their worshipers have to make all kinds of noise. I think about the, uh, the, the, the prophets of Baal with Elijah. When they're making all kinds of racket and they're cutting themselves and they're dancing around and Elijah's like, man, I don't know, maybe... Maybe your God is out to lunch. Maybe he's on the toilet, Elijah says. He doesn't seem to be paying attention to you. And the prophets of Baal have to continue to make all kinds of racket. Why? Because there, there is no God there. There is no breath there. Right? There is a progression here that when all we care about is ourself and getting more and exploiting whatever we have to do to get more, that pretty soon we go, you know who's awesome? This guy. Me, I'm awesome. And we create these idols, and they might be of wood and stone. They might be actual idols that you set up and worship. There's certainly that, that's still happening in our country and around the world. But it is also true to say that anything that takes the place of God in your life becomes an idol. And he says, woe to those who begin to worship their own creation, right? Look at what it says um, Look at what it says in 18. What profits is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker does what? He trusts in his own creation. We start, start to get really confident in who we are. This last woe is about idolatry, trusting in your own creation. It's very similar to what we read about in Romans 1.18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In Habakkuk, it says, woe to you who've stopped worshiping the creator and instead have started worshiping what you yourself have created. Now, you might not be a Chaldean. In fact, I, I find it highly unlikely that you are. But there is something declarative about God and his character and his expectation here that we all have to take a little bit on the chin. Are there places in our lives this morning where we've ceased to worship God and instead we've become enamored with ourselves, enamored with our own efforts, enamored with our own creation, and we've laid it over with, a, with an exterior lining of gold and an exterior lining of silver, and we said, look at this beautiful thing I made. That's the boss of me. It says, whoa. Whoa. Why? Because we have to make all kinds of noise to justify that, don't we? We've got to make all kinds of justifications and all kinds of excuses. It's not, it's not inconsequential that this last woe finishes in verse 20 by saying, in contrast to those who worship idols and have to make all kinds of racket in order to justify that, he says in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let all the earth keep silence. There's a juxtaposition here, which is instead of you having to go all kinds of crazy distances to justify your oppression and your segregation and your exploitation, all of your selfishness and your thieving, your communities founded on bloodshed, instead of going to all the work to justify you worshiping yourself and your own stuff, instead be quiet. The word there literally means hush before God. Quit making all that racket and be quiet. I don't think we're super good at being quiet, right? 
I don't know when the last time is that you tried to just be quiet for a few minutes. Intentional quiet is really hard for me. I start to get jittery right around the 40-second mark. You know, like, oh, I need some noise. I need some headphones. I need something to happen. A honk, you know, a honk on a horn or something. We're not great at quiet, but before God, there was a call for us to hush. I want you to see here that God does not overlook evil. God does not overlook evil. There's a couple of different ways to take that. One of the ways to take that is to know that no matter what circumstance you're in where wickedness is occurring, God is just. He will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. If you see violence, if you see injustice, if you see brokenness, if you see hardship, if you see exploitation, God will punish that. That's one thing to take comfort in. As we put our confident expectation in who God is, take, take and put your confident expectation in the fact that God punishes sin. But at the same time, you sort of have to wrap your arms around the fact that, that that might mean something terrible for you and me. Because there are places in our own lives where these very same failures, these very same woes could be said about us. Could be said about us individually, could be said about our families, could be said about our city, could be said about our country, could be said about our communities. And we need to sit up and go, God will not tolerate this. This will come around. The truth about God is universally true, even though this pronunciation is not about us specifically. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The reality is that all of us are guilty before God and it is only through faith. Remember the righteous by faith will live. It is only by faith in Christ that we escape death. But there are still consequences to our sin. There is still a call for us to hush before God, to evaluate our own lives, to look at the ways in which we've been using our lives to consume yogurt and that's not what they were built for. This morning I want to finish the message with a time of silence, that we would just hush before God, that we would consider the ways in which we approach our world. Do we approach our world with hatred, the violence and the oppression and the segregation, the things that we see, do we approach them with hatred or do we approach them with woe? Does our heart match the heart of God? Do we approach our own lives with woe, a lament, a sorrow, a grief over the brokenness within us? the brokenness we see around us? And do we recognize that God is on his throne and all mouths will be silenced before him? We're just gonna take a few minutes and be still. I know it's hard. I know you're gonna be tempted to get your phone out, tempted to whisper something, but can we just be still before God? He's in his holy temple. He is on his throne this morning. Can we just listen to him?